Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 22nd, 2020, and this is show number 811. Well, we have an extremely big show today because in Security Bits, we had two security mediums. So it's long and it's chewy and it's wonderful. They were both really, really interesting and I learned an awful lot. So I hope that's okay with you that we've got lots of really interesting stuff to talk about there. But because of that, I trimmed a couple of articles from this week's show and I moved them into next week for two reasons. One, because the show is going to be really long anyway, but it allows me to relax for the holiday week next week. But I do want to give you a heads up because one of the articles that I am moving to next week is has kind of a time sensitive element. Yeah, say that again, a time sensitive element in it. I'm going to be telling you about an app called Folge, F O L G E, which might be the replacement for Clarify that we've been looking for. Now, I'll explain a lot more about it in the article, but if this pricked up your little ears with interest, you may want to read ahead at the link to my article about Folge because it's on Black Friday sale right now till the end of November. I don't want to spoil it any more than that because it's a fun story, uh, and the normal price for Folge is probably still worth it, but I want you to go check it out if you want to jump on the sale, and you can do that by reading the article entitled, Can Folge Replace Clarify for Making Tutorials? And if you're in your podcatcher right now, there should be a link to it, uh, to that article in here. And that's if I remember to do it when we get to the end of the show. But I think I will. Well, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is an installment of Programming by Stealth. But you may have gotten the wrong episode in your feed. I accidentally put the wrong one in and I fixed it about one minute later. But those darn podcatchers of choice are too fast and they may have picked it up before I fixed it. If you hear the wrong number, just delete the episode and ask your podcatcher to download it again, and it should all be sorted. With that, here's what the show is about. As we continue to learn Git from the command line for version control, Bart teaches us some tricks to travel through time. First, he shows us how to view more compact Git logs so we can see just a shortened hash and the first line of our commit message. Then he shows us how to pick out a single commit from the past and see what was changed. Then he shows us how, with surgical precision, we can go back in time and get a single file or even just the changes from a specific commit and bring those forward in time. Now, that sounds headbendy, but I could immensely immediately see the usefulness of going back in time and grabbing some code that was working well and bringing it forward. Anyway, you can read along and uh, as you listen with Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. We all know that it's important to stay patched so you stay secure. That is if you've been listening to BART for any length of time. But I gotta say, macOS is making that a bit harder these days. The problem is that Apple really wants you to upgrade to macOS Big Sur, but if you're not ready for that big jump, it may be hard to notice that you have macOS Catalina and Safari updates left to apply. MacOS Big Sur is a huge change, and it's usually a good idea to let the bleeding edge folks work out the kinks. It's also not a bad idea to wait for Apple to make at least its first update before jumping on the new hotness. You may have applications that are not yet MacOS Big Sur compatible, so be cautious with a big upgrade like this. Now, I'm not a proponent of waiting a long time to upgrade to the latest OS, but caution, especially on a big change, is definitely warranted. While you're waiting for the OS to stabilize, you want to keep macOS Catalina up to date, but Apple makes it difficult to see just how to do that. 
While you're still on macOS Catalina, if you open up System Preferences and select Software Update, you'll see a big icon for macOS Big Sur with this obvious Upgrade Now button. But we don't want to upgrade to macOS Big Sur just yet. When I took the screenshot for, this, for the uh, blog post, I actually had updates to macOS Catalina and Safari waiting for me, but it wasn't obvious that they were there. Under the icon for macOS Big Sur, there was some little tiny text that said other updates are available and then a blue link text that said more info. If you click on that tiny more info link, it'll reveal the updates you really do need to apply. In my example, I had macOS Catalina 10.15.7 supplemental update waiting and the notes below clearly say that this update improves the security of macOS. There was also a Safari update to 14.0.1, which had some speed enhancements, but also security fixes, including the removal of support for Adobe Flash. Will you really want this update? After you apply any Safari or macOS Catalina updates, the Safari Update Preference pane will still say More Info, just like it did before. But if you click the link now, when you don't have any other non-Big Sur updates, it's going to open the Apple webpage telling you about all the awesome features of macOS Big Sur. I presume this More Info link will change back to showing you security updates for macOS Catalina and Safari when new ones are available, so you'll have to be vigilant and pay attention looking for the updates. I don't like it that Apple has made it so undiscoverable that security updates are waiting for us. I would really prefer that they had made two equally obvious buttons, one to upgrade to macOS Big Sur and one to update macOS Catalina and Safari. I think they're doing a disservice to the community by making it this hidden. As I said up front, I'm a big proponent of getting on a new OS when it's practical to do so. But you know what? It's the user's decision when to do it, and they shouldn't be tricked into doing what could be a catastrophic upgrade. I mean, what if your applications aren't ready yet? A lot of mine aren't. Anyway, since you're probably the family nerd, if you're hearing this, please pass the, the blog post along that you can find in your podcatcher to your friends and family so they stay patched, so they stay secure. There's a category of apps that provide a unique functionality and for which the user community is split into two camps. Those who are zealous about that functionality and really get why it's awesome, and those who don't get why they would ever need that functionality. A perfect example of this category is clipboard managers. I was in the second camp for a very long time because I simply couldn't understand why I would ever need to go back to my clipboard history to get something. And then I got CopyM and I've never looked back. I find it very hard to work without a clipboard manager now and I use it several times a day. Hazel is another example of this category. Hazel's mission in life is to watch folders for you and take action on the files within. When I first heard about Hazel, I didn't get it. Why would I want an app that watched folders? You know, the early examples were for people who were scanning in documents and going paperless and all that, you know, and I wasn't scanning in documents at the time. But I finally eventually broke down and I watched David Sparks' Hazel Guide and I finally got it. I really understood what it could do and the power behind it. And it's not just about scanning in documents. I do use Hazel for scanning in documents, but that's actually its primary purpose for me. My favorite usage is that I have it watch certain folders, and when the files within get stale, it moves them to my network-attached storage, which is a Synology disk station. 
As you can imagine, I create a lot of data for the podcast each week, and after a couple of weeks, I'm certain I don't need it with me on my laptop, so it gets filed away on the Synology into different folders depending on the content. After I record the NoSillaCast, I upload it to a service called Auphonic, which levels the audio, sets it to the loudness standard for consistency, adds the album artwork, and uploads the MP3 file to my hosting provider, Libsyn. When it's done, it offers to also download the finished MP3 file. Hazel keeps a watchful eye on my downloads folder, and when it finds a file matching the pattern of my podcast naming convention, it moves it into my podcast audio folder for safekeeping. That folder, in turn, is one of the folders that is watched by Hazel, and the files are moved to Synology when they get stale. I've told you a few times that I have a folder on my drive called Delete Me, my favorite folder. This folder's whole purpose is to tell future me I already have a copy of any file found inside, or the file was never important enough to keep in the first place. I have Hazel watch Delete Me, and after files are a week old, they just get dumped out to the trash. At one point, when Dorothy and I were working out the process for her her to keep the Programming by Stealth Index up to date that she created, we thought we needed her to FTP stuff to podfeet.com. Now, I'd trust Dorothy with my life, and certainly with my technical digital life, but we wanted to figure out a way around this, you know, just for the geekiness factor. I solved it with Hazel. I created a folder in Dropbox called FTP to Podfeet, and I shared that folder with Dorothy. Then, if Dorothy put a new version of the JSON file into that folder, Hazel would find the match to the name and use its own built-in FTP tool and send the file with my credentials so it would go up to my server. After it sent the file up, it would politely throw the file in the trash. It was so nerdy and cool. I was actually kind of sad we didn't end up needing it, but it was fun that we figured it out. Now, I'm really embarrassed to admit that there are a few things Hazel can do that everyone would like, but I only discovered very recently. You can have Hazel delete files in the trash when they hit an age of your choosing, and you can even have the trash kept to a reasonable size. Let's say it's over like one gigabyte. It'll just start deleting the older files. One of my favorite newly discovered, like new to me, but everybody else has known about it forever, is that Hazel has a feature called App Sweep. If you delete an app by simply throwing it in the trash, you'll have all kinds of cruft left over on your system, like plists and cache files, save states, and downloaders. They might not cause a problem, but they may someday, so why not delete them? With Hazel, if you enable App Sweep and you throw an app in the trash, after just a couple of seconds, Hazel will pop up a window asking you, would you like me to clean up all this glop that was left behind? I used to use Parallels Parallels Toolbox's uninstall apps tool to delete apps. It was supposed to find these orphan files, and it did find some, but I found that Hazel had to clean up after Parallels Toolbox. I wrote to the Parallels people, and their support was completely uninterested in my findings, and like they wanted me to send them log files. I'm just saying, hey, your app's not doing what you think it is. I did send them log files, and uh, but I suggested they simply test their own darn app. I mean, I find any app you want to delete with it, and it's not going to get all the, the slop. Anyway, I gave up on Parallels Toolbox, and now I just throw away apps and wait for Hazel to clean up after me. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm taking this trip through Hazel, since it's been able to do all of this for ages. It's because Hazel has a huge new update. In the past, Hazel worked as a preference pane in System Preferences, but the new Hazel 5 is a standalone app. This allowed the developer, Paul Kim, to provide some nice enhancements and to make it ready for macOS Big Sur. 
Now I've just started playing with it, but it's got some really nifty new features. You can now add some organization to your watch folders by creating folder groups. So now all of my bill scanning rules are in one pile and all of my podcast automations are in another pile. And that makes me really happy. Now this one sounds like a dumb thing to get excited about, but Hazel has undo now. Locked in the cage that was preference panes, if you messed around with a rule, you had to cancel without saving if you broke it. Now you can remove rules and undo and even remove steps from your rules and undo or just fiddle with the settings in a rule and undo them. Experimentation will be much more seamless now. The interface overall feels much more intuitive and more discoverable now. I went back to a Mac I hadn't updated yet because I thought I'd found some new features only to find they'd been there all along, but it's discoverable in the new app. In preferences for Hazel 5, you'll find new layout options. I really like the option to have a specific rule I'm working on in a nice wide pane down across the bottom and the folders and rule lists in two panes up above. It puts the widest item in a wide pane. I think my single favorite improvement in Hazel 5 is that you can now pop out rules into floating windows. The use case for this is when you got one rule working that was maybe kind of complicated and you're trying to create a new rule that's similar. And in the old days, you had to flip back and forth between them and maybe leave the new one in a non-working state that you didn't really want to save. Now you can just have them side by each while you figure out how you got the rule to recognize the right date pattern or to follow a script you created. Hazel contains two new features that are definitely in the power user category, lists and tables. The main idea of these features is to be able to provide a list or table of attributes and add logic to your rules based on these lists or tables. You can create the list or table inside Hazel 5, or you can reference an external file. With tables in particular, you can have a list of items and then return values from another column in that table. That's a pretty cool concept. Now, I was able to get the list to work, but I haven't gotten tables to work exactly as expected. I decided to try the external table option in my testing. I created a very simple table with four headings and four rows of data in numbers, and I exported that as a comma-separated values file, or a CSV. But Hazel wasn't able to interpret it properly. I thought the problem was that numbers added two extra commas at the end of each line, which created two blank heading rows, heading rows, I should say. So I created the exact same table using Excel. Now, Excel 365 doesn't appear to have an export option. I mean, if somebody can find it for me, I would really like to know. You have to save as a CSV file, which isn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to keep my Excel file. But anyway, you have to save as a CSV. This file also didn't work properly as the input to Hazel. In all cases, cases Hazel imported all of the columns into the first column of the table. I even tried the tab delimited option from Excel into Hazel and I had the same issue. Now Paul and I have been trading information and it looks like the problem in the Excel export is with Windows line delimiters in their CSV format out of Excel and it was the double comma at the end of the CSV files from numbers that caused two empty header cells which basically breaks everything when you try to do the import. Paul is working on some solutions, and in the meantime, I think I'd just work with embedded tables for now until it gets sorted. You could also use another tool to clean up your CSV file, maybe BBEdit with Zap Gremlins, I don't know, something like that. In any case, it's a, it's a cool feature, and this is a brand new product, so eh, a little bit of kinks to work out, I think. The bottom line is that Hazel 5 is a very welcome upgrade. 
If you've used it before, this is not going to be jarring at all. It's just, it's more like, like if you got your kitchen remodeled, but all of the appliances were still in the same locations, so you know where everything is, it's better, but familiar. There's a couple of bugs, I think, to be worked out, but I'm, I'm writing this, I mean, I wrote this up like a week after this entirely new design was released. Paul is super responsive, and I know the few rough edges I found will be polished off quickly. He did make one crazy decision. He's only charging $20 for this upgrade, no matter how old your license is, and even if you have a family pack license. I personally think he could have charged a lot more, but don't tell him I said that. If you haven't ever bought Hazel before, it's $42 for a single license or $65 for a family pack. I love Hazel, and now I love it even more now that it's a standalone app. If you find value out of the work we do here at the Podfeed Podcast, I'd like you to consider becoming a patron. By that, I mean go to podfeed.com slash Patreon and show your support in a financial way. If you're not able to do that right now, consider an alternative path. Corner your friends, family, and coworkers and show them how to subscribe to the shows we do here. That would be even more fun. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. What's going on today, Bart? Oh, goodness me, do we have a long... Well, no, we don't have a long list. We have two deep dives. We haven't had any deep dives in ages. And like buses, we get two of them at once. <laughs> oh, goody. I, I, uh, I love a deep dive. Those are That's my favorite is when we really dig in and chew on something. That sounds, that sounds great. Well, you're also going to like our first bit of feedback and follow-up. Um... You made a point of mentioning the futile attempt to shut down YouTube DL through DMCA takedown requests. On GitHub, how, right? Yeah, you encouraged everyone to clone the repo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it took a little bit of time, but um, GitHub passed the um, question on to some legal and code experts who came back with, uh, no, this takedown request is horse poop. Uh, so mm. they put it back and they've completely changed their policies for future such uh, requests. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I, I saw that it was back. Now, they did take some links out to copyrighted content from the GitHub page. So maybe that was like a small head nod of like, okay, fine, if you don't want me to link to that video. Maybe. Um, but what I found more interesting is that they have said that in future they will be they will assume not a problem rather than assuming a problem and they will get expert advice before they act. Interesting, interesting. Didn't they also put together some money for a defense fund? Sorry, you're right, they did, yes, uh, to help uh, open source developers who get targeted by these kind of things. That's fabulous. Yeah, Gotta so love that's it. to say, Microsoft continue to be good stewards of, um, of GitHub. Excellent, excellent. And on a related note, John Gruber linked to um, a, an app, a Mac app based off of the open source YouTube DL <laughs> library. So mm -hmm. if you just want something easy to use, it's called Viddle, V-I-D-L, and link in show notes. Cool. Uh, there's a lot of apps like that and a lot of websites you can go to for it too. You just grab the URL and stuff it into these websites and it downloads the video for you. Uh, there's one inside of uh, Parallels Toolbox. I don't ever nice. do that, but if you wanted to, you could do it with Parallels Toolbox too. So it's not like, I mean, I don't know that that's built on YouTube DL, but they're all over the place. Mm. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, 
the rollout of COVID apps is not continuing quickly, but it is continuing. Uh, Michigan joins the list of US states with a Google slash Apple based app. Unfortunately, things are not going so well in the UK. Their app uh, has stopped working for some iPhone users. Um, huh. There's a bit of a hacky workaround where you have to disable and re-enable location services. Oh, geez, that's a little dicey. Yeah, now, given that lots and lots and lots of other countries also have Apple slash Google-based iOS apps, and the problem is UK-specific, I fear... They've made a boo-boo, rather than this being a problem with Apple's APIs. Yeah. Well, you don't suppose that's a, a, a uh, an indicator that they're doing something dodgy with uh, location services? Like, because it's not supposed to be really tracking your location, right? Well, the Apple Google API isn't, but the NHS app also contains a check-in feature. Okay. So maybe so that it's is, in that piece of it? Yeah. Yeah, so their app is more than just the Apple Google bit. Um, because they're they're trying to keep restaurants. Well, they were trying to keep restaurants and stuff open. So you had this concept of checking into a restaurant for contact tracing, so that the restaurant could easily meet its required paper keeping. Oh, okay, okay. Instead of writing on pieces of paper when people walk in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, I mean, it's not without logic. Um, mm-hmm. but it may be buggy. Okay. Meanwhile, the social media platforms continue to evolve to 2020. Um, Twitter have uh, rolled out, although apparently they've slowed down the rollout because it was getting too heavily used. They're ephemeral tweets, which are fleeting tweets or <laughs> fleets. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I really like this because one of Twitter's big problems is that the flippant stupid thing you say at four o'clock in the morning haunts you for 20 years i guess i don't know i just if, to me twitter is fleeting every time i pick it up i've got a whole new list of things and i can't possibly find the thing i was looking at yesterday because it's so i follow so many people it's just all flying by right. like a giant river but it's not you it's what the googles will find so the big problem i foresee is that it's going to become impossible to come in an, a, a public figure in the future because Twitter has a permanent memory for the moment, or up until this new feature has come out, mm-hmm. where every dumb thing you have ever tweeted will be lorded over you out of context the moment you run for office. I suppose. There's people right. willing to be tracking you and taking screenshots, though. I mean, how many times have we seen where a public figure has taken down a tweet? It's like, yeah, but here's what it said. Right, but that's when they tweet as a public figure. I'm talking about something you do today when okay. you're 14. Stopping uh-huh. you running for president 30 years from now. I see. So they can't go back in history and find it. Correct. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And if I'm posting a photograph or something that I've put work into, I'm going to post it as a tweet. Mm-hmm. But if I have a hot take on something, particularly something that makes me cranky, I'm going to be fleeting it. Hmm. Yeah, it requires you to use the Twitter app, and I don't use the Twitter app, so I haven't been as intrigued with trying it. I've given up on third-party apps. It's, I've stopped swimming upstream. Twitter have decided for their own stupid reasons to kill them. Yeah, I haven't yet heard of a feature that I wanted that they got, you know, I know that they have deprecated certain features, but I haven't noticed any difference. It runs, works the same way it did when I got it. I get all the same information. There's a few things I'd like to see, but not enough to use Twitter. 
And it's funny because my experience is that the Twitter app is just getting better and better and better and I hate it less and less and less. And do you know something about three months ago, I think I might have flipped from hating it less to liking it more. Oh, interesting. Now you get to watch ads or see ads, right? Occasionally. Very occasionally. Yeah. Uh, oh, I thought they were, I just assumed they were all the time. I don't get ads in, in uh, third-party clients. Um, I don't see them very often. Maybe oh. I'm a weird user, but I don't see oh, them very that's good. often. That's good to know. Uh, yeah, I suppose I could try it. I, I just find that none of the third-party apps I've used are as good with conversation threading, and I find that actually a really useful feature of modern Twitter. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I don't know. I see. I see a, a tweet that it looks like it's part of a conversation. I just swipe over, and there's the conversation. Usually, I think I can see it. But anyway, that would yeah. be fun. It would give it a try. As I say, it makes I, me I was feel old. <laughs> makes I was not old. a lover, and I have been grudgingly converted. And you know how cranky I can be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, in other news, um, Zoom are dropping their time limit on free meetings for Thanksgiving. Oh, that's nice. So since we can't all get together, maybe we can set some, set uh, Uncle Billy up on an iPad on the dining room table and have him there with us for all of Thanksgiving. Exactly. That That is exactly the concept. So uh, I've heard people planning all sorts of things like, you know, they'll agree a menu and they'll each cook it themselves, you know, each cook it separately and then sit down at the table with the iPad on the other half of the table and share a meal, even <laughs> if there's 500 miles between you. Oh, that's nice. I like it. Yeah. So I, I say well done to, to Zoom buying themselves a little bit of goodwill there. Yeah, that's e not going to cost them much and it's going to make people happy. And encourage safe behavior. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. So that's our feedback and follow-up. So deep dive number the first. These are all Apple-related deep dives. I guess it might have something to do with a gigantic big Mac OS going to 11. <laughs> <laughs> Probably related. Right. Um, the first thing to note is that Big Sur brings along some changes for third-party firewall apps. Hmm. So this has made quite a bit of reporting. Um. So a little bit of technical context will help understand the conversation, I hope. Okay. So before Big Sur came along, third-party firewall apps were kernel extensions. Uh, now, a kernel extension is effectively you writing a bit of the absolute core of the OS that then gets incorporated into the core OS and runs with an extremely eleva elevated level of power over everything on your computer. Um, a kernel extension is an extremely dangerous thing. We've tried to avoid them here, as I recall, Correct. over the years. Correct. For two reasons, which is A, security, and B, stability. If right. an app crashes, the app crashes. If the kernel crashes, goodbye OS, black screen of death. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Apple have decided that it's time for those apps to move out of the kernel and to move into... The regular user land, as it's called, uh, but they are providing APIs to oh. provide controlled access to network flow. Okay. Uh, so there's three really good reasons for Apple to do this and an understandable reason. So the three really good reasons, we already hit two of them. So code running in the kernel is really, really privileged. So it, if it's malicious, oh my God, is that problematic? If it's just incompetent, that's pretty problematic too. And when the kernel crashes, down goes the OS because the kernel is the OS, really. 
Now, is this the same change that's affecting uh, network devices? Like I know uh, I had to keep bugging. Well, I didn't have to keep bugging, but I chose to keep bugging the Drovo people to hurry up and update their app so that it was not a kernel extension. Um, or, or I mean, it, it is the same philosophy. Um, I, I, I doubt it's the exact same API, but it, the, a move is afoot to move away from kexts to APIs. Okay. For all sorts of things. Um, and so the only one I've really been studying is the firewall one because that's relevant to security. I haven't really been focusing on other kinds of drivers. The network. Okay. They did come out with one, by the way. Because if in good, case well, that means that the API is there. there. It's yeah. just a matter of them doing the work. Yeah, they did good. it like at the eleventh and a half hour, but they did it grudgingly, crankily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the third really good reason is that. In order for an OS to effectively police third-party components, the OS has to outrank the third-party components. Uh, okay. Right? You, you can't sense. actually effectively police something that has the same power as you. Then you're in a race condition. Mm -hmm. So this re-architecting where the Apple and Apple alone sit at the highest level of privilege and all third-party apps of all kinds are sitting at a lower level of privilege is a fundamentally more secure architecture. And it's an architecture Apple have perfected on the iOS side. So this is this is more of bringing the ideas that make iOS so successful back to the Mac. Okay. And then the fourth reason, which is understandable, is that third-party firewalls break the functionality of core OS services, or they can do, uh, and they can also break built-in apps if they're kernel extensions. They always generate support. They always could have done that. Or they always could have done that, okay. yes, up, up until the change in Big Sur. So while they were in the kernel, they had the power to stomp on anything. So they could end up stomping on stuff that makes the App Store work by accident or by user misconfiguring. They could stomp on core built-in apps. They could make iCloud stop working, you name it, right? Anything that touches the internet that's written by Apple could be blocked by these third-party texts. Okay. And that inevitably caused the support calls for Apple. So another reason Apple might be incentivized to push more and more things out of the kernel is to reduce their support calls. All right. A lot of good reasons. A lot of good reasons. So the pre-Big Sur, you really, 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 really had to trust your firewall vendor to be competent and not malicious. Um, right. So in Big Sur, the OS can impose their will on third-party firewall apps. So in theory, taking this architecture where the OS provides APIs and the third-party firewall apps then consume the APIs without being a kext, in theory, Apple could write the API in such a way that every single network packet would pass through the third-party app through this API for filtering. In okay. theory. It's not quite what Apple chose to do. They chose to send almost all network traffic through the third-party firewall apps for approval, but not quite all. Hmm. So all data coming from anything you install on your Mac is run through any firewall you install on your Mac. So all third-party apps, the data runs through your third-party firewall that you installed. Okay. And so, so like does a right lot now, of I've, others. I've installed Skype, and I'm running our uh, video through that. That would go through the firewall. Uh, if you had a third-party firewall. If I had a third fire, right. Yes, but only if you had a third-party firewall installed. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's the subject that's an important here. distinction yeah. because Apple have a built-in firewall and that built-in firewall is 
the whole point of this is that Apple remain above everyone else. So Apple's built-in firewall filters everything, which we'll get to in a moment. Okay. Um, but the third-party apps filter all third-party app traffic and an awful lot of CoreOS traffic and an awful lot of Apple app traffic. But there is a an allow list. Um, by the way, just that to Apple remind maintains. People, yes, that Apple maintains. We we are just. I'm just going to flag this now in case anyone's saying allow list. What's with this new terminology? <laughs> this new terminology is a move away from the same kind of language like master-slave, you know, black, bad, white, good. That's <laughs> not good. So it's allow list and deny list now, folks. So let's all good. get into the habit. Yeah, good. Keep, um, keep catching me when I say it, because I'm sure it's going to take me a while to get to that. Well, I keep catching myself as I type it, which is why I made a point of saying it out loud to help me remember it, too. Okay. Like, and Apple have white lit. Ooh. No, 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 no. Apple have allow listed. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Apple have, have allow listed a small subset of their built-in apps, and those apps go to do not go through third-party firewalls. So you might think that means that these allow listed apps get utterly unfettered internet access, but that's not actually true because the Mac has a built-in firewall, and that built-in firewall is genuinely sits at the edge of the OS. So all traffic actually runs through that built-in firewall. So that's still checking stuff, and you can still go down to the command line. It's IPFW, it's a standard um, BSD Unix firewall. You can go in there and do whatever you like, because that is the OS's firewall and not a third-party firewall, and it is still filtering everything. The other thing that's still filtering absolutely everything is anything outside of your computer. So... Any features in your router, the fact that your router is a one-way valve to the internet, all of that is completely, totally, and utterly unchanged by this. What is it? The only thing changed here is that third-party firewall apps don't get to put restrictions onto some allow-listed core Apple apps and services. So can, do we understand, uh, do we know what core apps and services that the, they put on the allow list? The linked post contains the file path to the plist file that lists the current set. And that set could change over time. So if anyone wants to have a look, the Ars technical link in the show notes gives you the file path. You can poke around if you like. Did they explain why they did this? Like, why are they allowing some things to, to pass through? Uh, well, I would imagine it's to stop third-party apps from breaking core OS features. They, they, they haven't okay. been explicit about it, but that is the reason you architected like this, is that there are things that the OS... Like with um, SEP, there are folders you simply cannot write in. There is now network traffic you simply cannot interrupt. Mm. I would imagine the topic we're going to talk about in deep dive number two is exactly one of the things you can't interrupt. In okay. fact, I know it's one of the things you can't interrupt. Okay. So there are, there are, you know, in a modern connected OS, it does actually need to talk to the internet for security stuff. So there are very good reasons to allow list things. You can quibble so it's with It's not Apple. just like Apple messages or or mail or photos or anything like that, is it? I don't know. I okay. didn't take the time to read the allow list, if I'm honest. So uh, let me guess, the third-party um, firewall vendors are really annoyed. If they're really annoyed, they're being quite quiet about it. Oh, okay. So, I but mean, was there a kerfuffle about this? What's, what's below a kerfuffle? <laughs> grumbling. There was grumbling about it. Okay. Compared right. to the kerfuffle we got for the deep dive number two, not a peep. Yeah, that's a full-fledged kerfuffle. That's a full-fledged kerfuffle, indeed. Okay. Um, 
So there is one fly in the ointment that I can see. So in the abstract, I am actually completely in favor of this design. I want my OS to be in full control and for core stuff to not be stoppable by third-party apps. But, 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 you can take the world's best design and in your first attempt at implementing it, it's not unusual um, for things not to go quite to plan. So, unfortunately, uh, security researcher extraordinaire Patrick Wardle has discovered that some of the uh, apps on the allow list, probably because they were coded in the days before such a concept existed, can be tricked into forwarding your network traffic on, or yeah, your network traffic on your behalf. And since they're on the allow list, they then get around third-party firewalls. So okay. Apple are going to need to do one or both of two things. They're going to have to harden the apps that get this privilege, right? If if you are worthy of being allow listed, then Apple need to put in the extra work to make sure that the APIs offered out by those apps can't be abused for piggybacking traffic through them. And Apple should probably proactively work to minimize the number of apps on that um, allow list. Because they have dangerously high privileges, essentially? Well, because every app they don't harden well enough is a potential end run around the firewall. Yeah. Right, right. So let me see if I understand this, and I'm pretty sure I don't. So start interrupting okay. me as soon as I say something stupid. So you're say he's saying that there are apps that are on the allow list that can mm -hmm. be tricked into taking uh, traffic from an app that's not on the allow list and letting it through? Right. So basically the way he describes it is instead of me saying... Dear operating system, let me talk to that server over there. They say, hey, you over there app, would you mind asking that guy over there on my, you know, on this my behalf? Okay. Yeah. Exactly now, the kind of thing you don't want it to be able to do. Correct. Now, it's way, way, way more subtle than that, right? It's nowhere near that obvious, right? It's, it, okay. the, these kind of exfiltration techniques involve like tricking tricking mail into making a DNS query to a DNS server, your choice or that kind of stuff. It's always a okay. bit more sneaky than that. Um, but the bottom line is those apps were not written. When those apps were written, this concept that someone might want to use those apps to sneak around a firewall, that was just not a thing that was considered when those apps were written. Okay. So now they have to be retrofitted in because, well, now those apps are in that privileged position. And clearly at least one of them can be tricked because Patrick Wardle has a proof of concept that works. So there okay. is at least one problem in at least one allow listed app. Okay. That's that's interesting. And it, it, this is on just on Big Sur, is this Catalina as well? No, this is just on Big Sur. So this the, this new approach of removing the texts and replacing them with APIs. So basically what we have here is teething problems. Okay. And in the Ars Technica article, like you said, they, they give the uh, terminal command. It's a defaults read command, and it uh, t looks for this content filter exclusion list. And I was mm -hmm. able to run that on Catalina and got some hits. Interesting. So like App Store Agent is one of them. I was just kind of curious of what was in there. iCloud D. There are two, there are two ones I would have guessed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, P-A-S-S-D. Wait, sorry, say that again. P-A-S-S-D, passkit core dot framework slash P-A-S-S-D. There's no W in it. MDM client. MDM so this is on is, Catalina. MDM is Bonjour, or what we used to call Bonjour. 
Oh, okay. Um, Tesla D. <laughs> I'm guessing that has something not to do with cars. I'm guessing that was something that was named after scientists rather than. No, it's probably cars. my dog. It could be that too. It just there's a Tesla lot. D. Yeah. D. Anyway, not I'm not seeing anything in yeah. here that I understand very much. Uh, Asset Cash Locator Service. It's all very Which cryptic, is kind of what it, you would expect, right? It's core OS functionality mm-hmm. that's being prevented from being interfered with by third-party firewalls. Okay. Interesting. And App Store D is for- particularly important because the App Store is your mechanism for software updates. So Ah, right, right, right. You wouldn't want that to be messed with. Correct. Correct, correct. Okay. So that is the state of play with that mini kerfuffle. Uh, the major kerfuffle, because I very much buried the lead here. <laughs> and everybody uh, wants to hear about this one. Everybody wants to know what Bart has to say about it. Right. Our so Slack gonna... has been on fire with people going, Bart, explain this to us. Okay, so I'm actually going to tell you the story and we'll we'll pick it up as we go through the story. It took me a while to get these notes down. Um, so there was a big controversy recently when, coincident with the launch of macOS 11 Big Sur, all of a sudden, some users in some parts of the world started having problems launching apps on older versions of macOS. So people were happily running Catalina or uh, whatever came before that, uh, Mojave. Mojave. Mm-hmm. And they would click on an app in the dock and it would go bouncy, 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 bouncy. And it may or may not launch after quite a few bounces. And, you know, a lot of people rebooted their Macs because they like, go, oh, that's odd. My Mac is behaving funny. Mm-hmm. And then they would mention it to their friend who go, and so's mine. And mm-hmm. it sort of soon started to percolate around the internet that there was something afoot in the wind. It didn't last long. You know, it was all done and dusted in an hour or two. And this was and literally on launch day of Big Sur. Correct, correct. So it didn't seem like it was a coincidence, and it wasn't a coincidence. Um, but Apple got it up and running again, and most people got on with their day. But some people thought a little more deeply about this. Why is me launching an app dependent on an Apple server? Mm-hmm. Why is my Mac... What is my Mac sending to that server? What's that server sending back? And most critically of all, what's that server storing? Hmm. But there are legitimate questions to ask when suddenly presented with this obvious evidence that launching an app is dependent on Apple servers being responsive. So you wouldn't think that launching, I don't know, Backblaze or or Twitter or something would, would uh, why would that need to be talking to Apple? Exactly. I mean, they are, that is a legitimate question to ask. Okay. Unfortunately, the answer that made waves across the interwebs was not a well-researched a carefully researched, well-informed article explaining things. It was a sensationalist hot take filled with inaccuracies. And that's me being as polite as I can be. (laughs) And that's the one everybody was sending around. Correct, because it was written to be as inflammatory as possible Mm -hmm. while being loose with the truth and really, really overstating the impact. It it was just, it was clickbait of the highest order. Hmm. So the claim being made was that Macs phone home to Apple with a unique per-app identifier every time you launch an app. And because there's a network connection involved, obviously your IP address is involved, because otherwise you can't talk across the internet. 
So the author then went on to focus on how much information you could theoretically infer from an IP address, and they may have got off on the deep end a bit there too. Okay. So the implication was very clear from the article. Apple is tracking every app every person launches. Every time they launch it. Every time they launch it. Well, the careful reasoned analysis did follow after the hot take. So we now actually know reality here. So what's actually happening is that macOS has been for years, by the way, none of this is new. macOS periodically uses an industry standard protocol, OCSP, the Online Certificate Status Protocol, to check that the developer cert that signed the app you're launching hasn't been revoked. So some important extra information that's missing from the original hot take flatly contradicts the original hot take. All apps from a given developer share the same cert. So you're not asking, it's not that the phoning home is app specific, it's developer specific, which is different. Mm -hmm. And the responses are cached. So there's a hell of a lot less information here than the original article would leave you to believe. So, you know, yeah, okay, so there is a network connection. It does contain the developer's certificate. And the answer that comes back from OCSP is a very simple valid, not valid. So it's basically, is this search still valid? Yes, no, is all that's happening. Okay, when uh, you say it's cached, you, the importance of that you were trying to point that out was saying that if I've just launched it 10 minutes ago, when I launch it again, it doesn't have to go check again? That is correct. And also, okay. if you launch Word, then everything from Microsoft is not going to be checked until that cache expires. Okay. Because it's all Microsoft developer cert. So you can launch okay. Teams and Outlook and PowerPoint if you're feeling masochistic. <laughs> Um, See, right. I was I was going to go audio hijack, sound source, loop back, all from Rogue that works Amoeba. too. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. I mean, that works too. Thunderbird, Firefox. You know, there you go. Yeah. Um, now, there is also the fact that if you do something across the internet, then you know your IP address is involved in that connection. Mm-hmm. But the fact that your IP address could be logged is not the same as your IP address is being logged, and it is being correlated with the apps you're launching, right? That's not the same thing. Okay. Could be and is are very, very, very different beasts. But we, so, don't, we, won't, we don't know, Bart. They could be. Yeah, but that's not how the article was written. <laughs> um, so basically, what's actually possible for someone to know if they were to take the effort to log everything that is going to the online certificate status protocol server is someone in your house run a Microsoft app. That's <laughs> okay. actually the level of information we're talking about here. Someone at your what, IP address, which may or may not be your house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was putting it into common sure. person terms, but an example right. would be someone in your house run a Microsoft app or, mm-hmm. you know, someone in the Podfeed household ran something from Rogue Amoeba. Mm-hmm. I'd say that happens quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a big shock. I don't know how you'd figure that out. Okay. So, and that's what Apple could store. Okay. That doesn't mean they are. So, the information's an awful lot less specific than what the original post claimed. And the information is identifying what Apple could 
lug if they wanted to be googly. Not what they are. <laughs> okay. So at this stage, you might be wondering, okay, so if we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that this is malicious, that still doesn't leave me feeling very comfortable, because unless I understand why this is happening, how am I supposed to decide what's a reasonable interpretation of these facts? So let's actually explain what's going on here. So what we're talking about here is an important security feature, not a privacy violation. So it's been a long time now since Apple have introduced support for digitally signed apps. And when you digitally sign an app, you are cryptographically given, you're given two cryptographically enforced promises. The first is authenticity. The signed app really did come from the developer listed in the certificate. So if I have an app that is digitally signed by Microsoft, it really came from Microsoft. It is authentically a Microsoft app. And the other thing we get is integrity. A signed app has not, a signed app whose signature still validates, has not been altered by one bit since it was signed. Okay. If we have a signed copy of Microsoft Word, we know it came from Microsoft and that no malware has been injected into it at any point in time between Microsoft's compiler and our Mac. All right. Okay. That's pretty important promises. Mm -hmm. And on top of those cryptographically enforced promises, Apple layers some policy promises. So to get a cert, you have to prove your identity to Apple. I've been through the process. There's some serious hoop jumping here. Okay. Uh, And once you have your cert, you only get to keep it on condition of abiding by rules, guidelines, etc. Okay. So there's a whole policy stuff that's leveraged on top of the cryptographic promises. So we've got authenticity, integrity, and identity at this point. Correct. Okay. Now, all of these promises that Apple put on top of the cryptography depend on the cryptography to be enforceable. And all the cryptography depends on an assumption. The assumption is that the private key matching the certificate is only possessed by the developer. So if that assumption breaks down, the cryptography doesn't provide the guarantees we need. So we actually need the ability when something goes wrong to revoke certificates that happened with what was it handbrake one of those got was it handbrake that got the mm. uh, somebody stole their certificate yes you're right yes exactly the and then they had and they to, were able so, to get it revoked because of that correct correct okay. so there's two scenarios when it's really there are more but there are two common scenarios when it's really 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 important to revoke a certificate so the first one is what we've already mentioned a developer loses control of their key So that can happen through a malicious actor, right? You can be hacked and therefore lose control of your key. Or, as has happened far more often than it should, you can accidentally publish your key on GitHub. The (laughs) amount of open source projects that have accidentally published private keys to GitHub is astonishing. Oh, that's so sad. (laughs) But either way, the developer, realizing they've lost control of their key, contacts Apple. Well, they don't contact Apple. They log into the developer portal. They click revoke certificate. They click get new certificate. They re-sign their app and all sanity is restored. But that means that you're relying on revocation. Another 
reason for revocation is that you agree to all of Apple's terms and conditions, you get your certificate, and then you decide to show your true colours. You've been on your best mm. behaviour until Apple gave you a certificate. Uh, and then you be- you reveal your naughtiness and you digitally sign malware. Well, at that point in time, again, Apple have to be able to revoke your certificate. So without certificate revocation, a certificate would remain valid until certificate expiration. And certificates last a year. So if you put on your smiliest puppy dog eyes or whatever and say, dearest Apple, I'm such a, such a good little boy. Please give me a certificate. You then have 364 days to be an evil person. Okay. So obviously you have to be able to revoke certificates. So that is why the Mac periodically checks if the certificates underpinning its security have been revoked through the Online Certificate Status Protocol, OCSP. OCSP, okay. And Apple didn't invent OCSP. Apple are not weirdos for using OCSP. OCSP is the solution that is part of the public key infrastructure that underpins HTTPS, secure email, VPNs, everything, right? If you go to podfeet.com and click on the padlock, or you can do it on bartb.ie, doesn't matter where, you click show certificate, you expand details, you scroll down far enough, you will see somewhere in there OCSP, Online Certificate Status Protocol URL. So everything from Digicert is at ocsp.digicert.com. Everything from Let's Encrypt is going to have a different OCSP URL. It is, our certificates have baked into them a URL for a server that will give a thumbs up, thumbs down. Still valid, or I've been revoked. Okay. So Apple have servers. So Apple issued their developer certs. So those developer certs contain an OCSP URL of ocsp.apple.com. And that server got overloaded, but it didn't get overloaded enough, right? If it had crashed completely, every app trying to launch would have simply failed to connect and carried on. I said, okay, I would have liked to check that certificate, but I have no internet access right now. I guess I'll launch the app anyway, which is why you can launch apps offline, by the way. It's like, oh, there is no internet. Well, I'll just have to assume the cert hasn't been revoked yet. I'll check it out next time I'm online. And if the servers are down, macOS will go, well, I really would like to check up on that certificate, but the server is dead, so I'll launch the app for now, but next time I'll check again. But this time what happened is the servers were still answering TCP connections, but the brain was overloaded, so it was slow walking those connections. So if it hadn't responded at all, it then it fine. would have been okay, because it would go, okay, well, you're, it's probably still fine. I'll check again later. But because it was half there, it was there enough to say, yeah, 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 I'll get to you. And then it wasn't. Which means they had to wait. Which means they had to wait. And that's why all the apps were bouncing in people's docks. Oh, wow. What a a catastrophic failure. What a widespread failure to to be caused by that. But why, why were those servers overloaded? It had something to do with Big Sur being downloaded? Well, okay, so Apple have told us that they there were issues with their content delivery network, CDN, for ocsp.apple.com. So there's not one ocsp.apple.com. There's lots right. of them spread across planet Earth, which is why us Europeans don't seem to have experienced this bouncy, bouncy problem, but Americans very, very much did. Oh, interesting. But did it have anything to do with Big Sur? Was it just a coincidence? 
It's a bad day. Okay, so it is definitely the case that Big Sur being released put extra pressure on those servers. So if they had an underlying problem, it was definitely going to get poked at on Big Sur day. As So what we know for a fact is that Apple have said, yeah, we had a problem with our OCSP, we have made changes, the problem won't recur. But they haven't said it was this thing was misconfiguration in that way. But a few little broodies have been talking to a few people in the industry. And as best as I can figure out, the most likely scenario is that Apple made a boo-boo in the time to live for the caching and accidentally disabled caching. Oh, yeah. You're so, inferring that from the I'm smoke around the fire? From what basically I was talking to an Apple engineer on condition of anonymity who said that. Hmm. Okay. So it's hearsay, right? This is hearsay. So that's why I'm caveating the bejesus out of it. Okay. Okay. But that would explain what happened because if the result isn't cached, then it actually does become true that every time you launch an app, the Mac tries to talk out to the OCSP server because it goes, oh, you're not valid anymore. I guess I better go figure you out again. And then you get an answer whose time to live is incorrectly set because of a misconfiguration. And so straight away again, it goes, oh, I need to check you again. Okay. Oh, oh and, and plus that would mean that every app on every Mac on every network connection, all of them would be doing it all at the same time. Correct. So the amplification oh. effect of yeah, that yeah. misconfiguration would be huge. Yeah, the time and to live you, could cause it. Yeah. And if you do that on Big Sur Day, when the network's already undergoing higher than normal stress because everyone's updating all their apps, <laughs> right? You can well, see you how that would... you have to be updating your apps for it, have to, for it to, to be hammering the OCSP server if the time to live is set wrong. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So, But even Just if the and. time to live was correct, exactly. It's and, and, and. And so... These things obviously get to a tipping point. And I've seen this in my with my work hat on a million times. When you get to a certain tipping point where a server goes from being a little bit unresponsive, you suddenly hit a tipping point where one or two clients time out. And at that point, users be users. <laughs> they hammer the refresh button. They quit and restart the apps. It <sighs> amplifies. So I have seen this where we've had a web server handing out exam results. and. It slows down a little bit to the point where one or two people get a timeout and they start hammering the refresh key and bam, the thing falls over because everyone's mm-hmm. hitting F5 all at once. So the tipping point between, oh, we're in a little bit of trouble and now we're gone. Oh, you know, it's the old cliche, how did you go bankrupt? At first slowly and then all at once. How did the service go down? At first slowly and then all at once. Oh, what a mess. Yeah. Oh, it, so... How bad do you feel for the sysadmin that made that typo? <laughs> Pretty bad. They had, a, oh. they had a not good day. Well, and, so, and I bet all the sysadmins had really bad days. Right. Just one had a slightly worse day. <laughs> yeah, it was one guy's fault, so he got the dirty looks from all of his colleagues who shared his bad day. I bet she did. She probably had a terrible day. <laughs> yeah. Remember yeah. the rules. You got to say she t- on uh, both ways. And the bad stuff <laughs> and the good stuff. You're right. Yes. <laughs> So, if this were to be the end of the story, I would say there was no problem. Apple is using the same OCSP protocol that Firefox is using that basically it underpins the public key infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They're using it for an extremely valid reason. Mm -hmm. And when they don't break their TTLs, they're using it in a proper way. 
But Apple didn't stop at that. Apple released a statement explaining, A, that they're using OCSP to check developer certificates, yada, yada, yada. B, to tell them that, actually, the other thing I meant to say is if you run, so OCSP runs over HTTP, and OCSP underpins HTTPS, so you can't use HTTPS for OCSP because that's a circular dependency. So OCSP traffic is not encrypted. Okay. What it is, is digitally signed. So while it is in plain text, it cannot be spoofed. Oh, okay. So the answer you get back is cryptographically guaranteed to be the correct answer. But both the question and answer are in plain text. So it's a postcard, but it's been shellacked over. (laughs) Can't be erased. I like it. I like it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. It's an uneditable postcard. Um, and so that's why it's not encrypted. Okay. It, so it makes sense. It makes sense. The other thing is an OCSP server is a web server. If you install a web server, unless you go out of your way, that web server has a log which contains IP addresses and URLs. It doesn't contain the content of the URLs, but it does contain IP addresses and URLs. And those logs are really for troubleshooting and they're rotating by default. So if you just install a web server, the normal thing is you have rotating logs, you know, depending on your choice of OS and so forth. Maybe it rotates every 24 hours, maybe it rotates every two gigabytes. Rotation can be done on size or age or both, you know, whichever happens first. But it's a rolling log, which you can use to troubleshoot and for statistics like, oh my God, why are we all of a sudden getting, you know, 5,502 errors, whereas yesterday we had one. Obviously my website's broken, that kind of thing. So I would imagine that Apple ran that OCSP server like anyone else on planet Earth would, which meant they had logs and those logs did contain IP addresses. That's not the same as saying the data is being permanently archived, analyzed, and tied to people's Apple IDs for profiling. That's just servers have internal logs that rotate. That's just normal. So there's nothing suspicious here. Now, what Apple released in a statement was, A, yes, we're using OCSP. This is why we're using it. Our logs did contain IP addresses. We have reconfigured our OCSP server not to log, and we've deleted our logs. Oh. So those rotating logs that I would have expected them to have are now ORM minus ORF star. Poof, they're gone. And their web servers have been removed from a default configuration to a configuration that logs nothing. Which so, is harder to troubleshoot, but hey. Needs sure, most. so they there was some uh, value to people going, tilting their heads to the side and saying, hey, wait, yeah, but wait a minute. Correct, and it gets okay. better. It oh. gets better. So that is what Apple have done. So they have changed their logging. They have deleted the old logs. Mm -hmm. They have made a promise as well for the future. They're going to replace OCSP with an encrypted protocol of their own creation. That doesn't depend on HTTPS? Or is it? They haven't said that. What they have said is they're replacing it with an encrypted protocol. Okay. There is no such thing at the moment. So that means they have to invent it. It doesn't exist. Hmm. So if I were to guess, if I were an engineer in Apple and I was told you have a year to fix this problem, what I would do is I, because Apple are the only certificate authority who sign Apple developer certificates, 
you get to cheat. So I would simply create a secure tunnel to ocsp.apple.com and route all OCSP traffic through the tunnel. Basically, a lightweight mini VPN implemented using something like IPsec. I just route all the traffic through the tunnel. Okay. Call it a day. But I don't know what Apple will choose to do. Maybe they'll choose to open source something that everyone can use. Maybe they'll they'll just scratch their own itch. I have no idea. The important point is Apple have said that they are going to replace OCSP with an encrypted protocol. At which point in time, every single possible complaint, no matter how feeble, goes away. <laughs> so uh, can they let us know the day they turn that on so we can all just unplug our computers for a couple of days? <laughs> Well, I would imagine that it's going to be in whatever comes after Big Sur, uh, Venice Beach or whatever. <laughs> I'm waiting for Mac OS Venice Beach. It's, it's such an iconic California location. <laughs> that would be fun. It's one of the few places I've been. <laughs> I mountain biked up and down Venice Beach. It was lovely. Uh, so basically, there was never any actual scandal here. Okay. There were really, really, really good security reasons for doing everything Apple was doing. It was in no way sketchy whatsoever. And they're now going above and beyond what I would expect and doing even better than I actually would have ever thought they would. So oh, good. this is all good, really. Okay. Well, that's a lot. I'm, I'm really glad you went through that. And I can see why uh, it was difficult to do a two-line explanation in Slack. <laughs> When people are like, Bart, what is this about? And, you know, your first thing was, uh, it's a kerfuffle of some sort, but not, you know, that you weren't overly worried. But it sounds like, as usual, waiting a little while gets a lot more information, gets a better explanation instead of going going crazy right off the bat, right? I have a spidey sense for these things, and I just knew that there was more to this. And um, I try to remember what my initial take was, but it, it was... I was pretty scathing, really. Um, hyperventilating twaddle. I believe hyperventilated twaddle, I believe, is how I described it. And I stand by that description. It really was hyperventilated twaddle. Uh, but anyway, we we have all the details now, and it's nice to be able to to wrap it up in these these kind of segments. Um, and I did promise, because it was on Twitter it came to me, and it's, that, that you can't put that in, all, in 280 characters. <laughs> right, right. Well, that was good. That was really interesting. I like learning about that. Excellent. Okay, so back to regular scheduled programming. Action <laughs> alerts. Wait, make sure. Oh, never mind. That was uh, I was reading the links. Yes, action alerts. Make sure your Google Chrome is patched because Google Chrome have updated two rather important zero days, which the uh, Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. confirm are being actively attacked at the moment. So basically, turn it off and turn it on again, and it will take care of it for you. Hmm. Okay. Patch Tuesday has been and gone. We have the usual flurry of critical updates from Microsoft and Adobe. The Microsoft ones include a few zero days as well. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And Apple have been busy with important security updates, including Big Sur. (laughs) So Big Sur contains security fixes. For those people not yet on Big Sur, there's Security Update 2020-006. There's also Safari 14.0.1 and iTunes 12.11 for Windows. So you, you in your show notes, you said Security Update 2020-006 for macOS Mojave. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, you did. Okay, but it's, it's, there's also one for Catalina, not just Safari for Catalina. Uh, 
Catalina no. was also updated. No, according to Apple's page, Catalina. Well, I, ju- I got the, the update today or yesterday. Okay, well, support at Apple.com list. I copied and pasted those titles from support at Apple.com. Okay, well, there were two updates. There was Catalina and and uh, and Safari. Um, so one of the one okay. of the fun things about the Safari one was that is the removal of support for Flash was in that one. Yay! Ding dong, the witch is dead. Exactly, exactly. So I can uh, I can very quickly tell you what the update was. It was give me fifteen seconds here. It was. Catalina 10.15.7 Supplemental Update. Ah, okay. That one actually came out before our last recording. So we talked about that one last time. That was from the 5th of November. Really? Hmm. Because yeah, so I only got it yesterday, uh, two days ago. Well, it was released on the 5th of November. And then the okay. next ones were the 12th of November. And we last recorded on the 8th. Okay. Huh. Yeah, took me a wee while to figure out which ones to copy and paste into the show notes. <laughs> okay, because they're tripping over each other. They're tripping over each other and they're a bit out of step, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then finally, in Action Alerts, Facebook have patched a messenger bug which could lead to audio snooping. And Naked Security's quick synopsis is, update now, exclamation point. Mm. So, Facebook messenger peeps, do that. Oh, uh... T- or do we know which OS? Because they just came out with a Facebook Messenger for the Mac. Uh, it didn't exist it until just recently. To be honest, it I'm used- not a Facebook user, so I just linked to sure. the story. What does it say? Yeah, lots of different ways about how it could be terrible. Tell me one OS. <laughs> All right. Well, we can let people worry about it. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, whatever platform you're on, uh, just let it update itself, really, would be my, my takeaway mm-hmm. there. Uh, so, worthy warnings. Um, Brian Krebs offered some, what I think is very sage advice. Be very sparing, allowing site notifications. So this mm. is that really annoying feature where a web browser asks you for permission to send you push notifications to the to your OS from the web page. I hate it. <laughs> hate it, hate it, hate it. But you have another reason to hate it even more. There is now a thriving new trade on the dark web. Legitimate websites get people to sign up for notifications and they sell access to those people to malicious actors so that they can use the legitimate website to push phishing attempts at people. Hey, Apple, could you give us a switch to just turn those off always? Yes, please. Like, I, I, I have not thought of a website I would like to have send me notifications. Gmail. Oh, use a client. Shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right, but the reason those were invented was so that people could have web-only clients. That, yeah, the, the but it's reason like that I go to a hardwarestore.com. You know, it's like I need to buy a wrench. Can I send I know, you notifications? No. I think it was a misguided idea, but it wasn't an idea without without some logic, even if I think it was How have been pe- people been doing their Gmail for the last decade without it? It's been fine. Yeah, but it, it, it's, a, it's a lesser experience. Look, I, I'm not defending it. I'm just devil's advocating here. So for the rest of us, for yeah. all now, time. I, I want a button that says nope. Just yeah. nope. Nope, 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 nope. I wonder if that's an extension you can write. <laughs> I have a vague memory of it being on the roadmap for both Firefox and Safari that they would go away. 
Oh, I just assumed this was a feature that Safari had created. Oh, no, no, this is a web standard. Oh, it's a web standard. Oh, okay. I thought Apple did it to me. No, 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 no. Firefox, Chrome, they all do it. It's 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 part uh, of the standard. It's part of a new standard API, right? Okay. Yeah, I know, it's still terrible. Then well, the, actually, it's good that it wasn't that Apple created it because then Apple can give us a button to make it go away. Cross-site <laughs> no, scripting? Close. No, thank you. Yeah. Anyway, it's a terrible idea, but there we go. All right. I understand how it came to be. I still think it was a mistake. Yeah. Um Another worthy warning, the popular Android messaging app GoSMS Pro had a bug, still has, that uh, basically exposed millions of private photographs and files and they were responsibly notified. It didn't bother their backsides getting back to the security researcher who then went public. Basically, if you send someone a message who doesn't use the app, they get sent an email to the file and the file IDs aren't randomized they're sequential so you just add one and see the next person's file add one and see the next person's file add one and see the next so you can just enumerate them you can just view everything that anyone has sent wow that's that's such a rookie mistake it's not even funny yeah uh, meanwhile, Vertaphone have had a data breach affecting, sorry, Vertafor have had a data breach. They're an insurance company, apparently, affecting 27.7 million Texan drivers. I don't know how many people live in Texas. 27.7 million has got to be a substantial percentage of their driving populace. You would think. So if you do live in Texas, you probably recognize that name and you should probably read the story. Meanwhile, I get to end Worthy Warnings on a lightweight story and an upbeat story. So the Dutch have been at it again was how one of our Nasilla castaways put it in a tweet to me. Um, I wish I was better at remembering who to give credit to. Oh no. It made me lol. If that helps, you know who you are. (laughs) Um... So this time, the Dutch Minister for Security tweeted out a screenshot showing a meeting URL and most of the pin. Oh, no. <laughs> so a Dutch journalist decided to have a go at guessing the rest of the pin, and it didn't take them long. Do you want to guess where he found himself? No, I don't. I don't want to He found know. himself in a meeting of security ministers of the EU. In the you-can't-make-this-stuff-up category, huh? In the you-can't-make-this-stuff-up category. This is right oh, up there with Prince William God. tweeting out a photograph of his Wi-Fi password by mistake because it was pinned oh, yeah. to the whiteboard on a post-it note. I remember that. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. So the security minister for Holland is not... Uh, for the Netherlands, apologies, Helma. Um, unfortunately, is not particularly security conscious and put the all of the security ministers for the whole of the EU... <laughs> at risk so there we go awesome yeah moving on to notable news we missed two stories last time we were complaining it was too quiet well that's at least, I know at least two reasons why we skipped Troy Hunt having formally partnered with 1Password as a strategic advisor hmm. so yeah Tro- yeah so Troy Hunt is the brains behind Have I Been Pwned and there's already been a lot of cooperation between Troy Hunt and 1Password, but now he works for them, so they get to basically drain his brain of good ideas. 
Yeah, which I wonder can only how we possibly go well. How, how did we miss this one? This is fantastic, though. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we also missed one from literally your backyard. How, how mm-hmm. on earth did we miss this one? So you may or may not remember that you had an election two weeks ago. Um, and oh my while God, there were it's national only been two matters. Weeks. <laughs> I think it's only been two weeks. Holy cow. Okay. As well as national matters, lots of states also had ballot measures, including a little place called California, which voted on something called Prop 24, which passed. And as a result, the California Consumer Protection Act, CCPA, I think that's what CCPA stands for. Mm. Having second guesses now. I think that is. Um, Anyway, your consumer protection law in California, which is best in the nation by far in the United States, is now even better than it was before Prop 24 passed. So a bunch of little loopholes where the wording was a bit weaselly have been tightened up. Uh, There's also been some changes made into how the law can be changed, making it harder to weaken. So if you want to make the law stronger, you need a simple majority. If you want to make the law weaker, you need a supermajority. Very clever ratcheting technique. Hmm. And uh, the bill provided funding for an agency to effectively act as a watchdog to make sure the law is actually applied. Now, I did, uh, I did vote for this. Go me. Um, but I was, I was intrigued by the fact that the um, EFF didn't think it went far enough, and so they were against it. And I was like, okay, come on, guys. You got, yeah. you got to give them something. But uh, the, re- the reason we're bringing this up isn't because the world revolves around me, even if I do think it does, but because <laughs> what California does has often a big impact on what the other states end up doing because so much of the code and things are written here. You know, this is where these apps are, you know, these, these big social networks, a lot of them are written and stuff. So it, it can help everybody for uh, in, the, in the U.S. anyway for us to be pushing the envelope on, on security and privacy. And also, California is such a large economy that no way an American company is going to not be able to do business in California. So they're going to Mm -hmm. have to comply with the Californian law. And it's actually cheaper to just comply with it nationally than it is to start trying to figure out which of your customers should and shouldn't get rights. Yeah. So it's just easier to give everyone the rights. Yeah, it was so, like when we got all excited about GDPR that that couldn't, that couldn't have hurt us in the United States. That had to have helped. Exactly. Exact the same dynamic, but in this case, it's California sort of being the tail that wags the US dog. Yeah. But it's all good. Yeah. I do... Um uh, I want to just read something funny that, that's going to fold in all of these topics together. We were talking about using Twitter and just mm-hmm. on a lark, I just launched Twitter and I got a really funny uh, notification. It says security update. We recently discovered a security issue in Android OS 8 and 9 that could have impacted you. Our understanding is 96% of people using Twitter for Android already have an Android security patch installed that protects them from this vulnerability. Since you are no longer using a vulnerable version of Twitter for Android on this device, you don't need to do anything. But we felt it was important to let you know. You can learn more here. What? Okay. (laughs) That was an awful, awful long way of telling you there's no problem. On a Mac. <laughs> okay. That, what? Yeah. Okay. So, so that was fun. Anyway. Yeah, they're, they're doing a great job. <laughs> yes. If you would like a quick and very well informed discussion of um, 
this Prop 24. The wonderful Recode Daily podcast covered it uh, on whatever date it actually happened. They covered it way closer to the time. Um, And if you don't listen to Recode Daily yet, it's a relatively new short form podcast that gives you a sort of a quick, here's what's happening that's really important in the tech world today, sort of, you know, one story, briefly well explained podcast. Hmm. I like it a lot. Do you want to take the lead on the next story? I do want to take the lead on the next one. I am so excited. Uh, 1Password 7.7 just came out today. If you don't have a subscription, you need to this, if there's ever a reason to, uh, to jump on board and get the subscription based one that's getting of 1Password that's getting updated all the time. Today is the day. They have now integrated use of the, uh, they've done a bunch of things, but one of the big things is you can now use your Apple watch to unlock 1Password. So if you have a, a touch ID Mac Right now, you can unlock 1Password with your fingerprint, and, I, and I'm sure that probably works with LastPass as well. But what mm-hmm. if you have a Mac that doesn't have one of those, like you've got a desktop, you've got an iMac or you've got a Mac Mini. If you have a, an iMac or a Mac Mini that has a the secure enclave and you don't have Touch ID, you can use your Apple Watch to unlock 1Password. I mean, this is, this is just lovely, just so lovely. It is. Now, it does unfortunately mean that people like me with older Macs get to be really happy very briefly <laughs> yeah but there's always the future right i mean there's it, always a future and there are ever you know over time this will become all max because yeah. all max is going to have the screw enclave so this is a really i'm delighted to see apps make use of these apis above and beyond just the core os itself so, so I, I think this is wonderful yeah, the other thing that makes uh, that uh, if, even if you don't have an, a uh, secure enclave on your Mac that makes this a fabulous update is it's now integrated. One password is integrated in with Safari. So now if you get to a field where there's going to be a password, you click in there and it automatically is just going to go, OK, you want it from one password. It, you don't have to hey. right click and pull down and go over to a menu pick or hit whatever it was, command backslash, whatever, to get to get it to come up and then do your fingerprint. It's going to come up right there. It's visible. It's available. It's right there just saying, I'm going to give you your password. And it's, it's you know, BJ Wanland was saying in our Facebook group that he said he thought, oh, I find it distracting because it is distracting. I mean, it is it is large. You cannot miss the fact that 1Password is helping you. But one password is helping you, and that's where you're going to. I was going to say, <laughs> when I meet a password field, the exact thing I want is my password, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you've trusted one uh, password with things like, um, I keep my credit card numbers in one password because I don't want to type all that glop in. It yeah. comes up with that too. You click and you get a drop down of here's here's your here's your uh, credit cards. Which one did you want to use? Boom, you're done. I mean, it's, it's so I've only hit it like three times today and I'm giddy with excitement every time I see it. It's so wonderful. Excellent. Well, look, we've both been one password fans for ages. So this lucky number seven, I guess, is in double force on <laughs> 7.7. 7, exactly. Really nice update. Yep. 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 Excellent. Um, a different kind of IoT security problem. Amazon have had to recall some Ring video doorbells because uh, they might set your house on fire. Now, it hasn't happened a lot. This is not an auga auga. Can, can I do this one? Yes, you can. Okay, so we have this Ring video, this Ring doorbell. There's two sets of screws in the in the in the box. 
there's big long screws that you use to uh, screw it. Yeah, I think it's the ones that screw it into the wall. And then there's two other screws that cover this one plate. And if you switch them, if you did it backwards, you would be shorting it out and can cause a fire. So if you're, sorry, not an idiot, you know, <laughs> pay attention to well, the instructions. The instructions were not clear enough. Apparently that a few people did this wrong. So, I mean, when I showed it to Steve, Steve installed our doorbell, so I didn't actually get to see it myself, but he looked and he went, God, who would get those two switched? That's really, I mean, they're not slightly different. They are completely different types of screws. They're not just like one's a millimeter longer or anything. They are very different screws. So anyway. You would be amazed, I, I think, at how, you know, something about, you know, the idiot-proof universe keeps making better idiots kind of thing. Right. Um, but the headline on this one was, it's like ring, I don't know, it was some enormous number of doorbells would have to be recalled. It's like tens of millions or something. some massive number. It was just, no. I mean, well, yeah, but still. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, it took me a while to find the link I was prepared to post in the show notes because most of them were like, ring could set your house on fire. And I was like, oh, that's dangerous. And then I read it and I went, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, yeah. OK, it's not good, but this is not the catastrophe that you're implying here. You know, yeah. Right. Hyperventilated twaddle. Um <laughs> Brian Krebs then is pointing out what I think is a noteworthy turn of events in the ever-evolving world of ransomware. Uh, One ransomware group has found a new technique for trying to get money out of victims. They use hacked Facebook accounts to buy ads to pressure the victims to pay up. Hmm. So as people are getting better at doing backups and stuff... They're not as quick to pay up. So now you have stuff like extortion going on where they're basically saying, we have your data and we'll publish it and taking out ads to shame people until they pay up and stuff like that. So the tactics are evolving as people are getting better at not being caught out by the technical problem. Hmm. And so now it really is just becoming a protection racket. Like it's it's pretty horrible cybercrime. But I thought it was a noteworthy, imaginative next step. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this next story, I don't. I never feel comfortable when we when we we are forced into what is technically a political area. But America has a government, and that government has a really important agency called C. Everyone calls it CISA because you can actually pronounce it. But it's the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, which has the in- word security in it twice. Infrastructure Security Agency. What did I Unless say? your notes are wrong. You said information, so I think it's cybersecurity. No, you're right. And My infra- notes say infrastructure because I copied and pasted from the actual website. Okay, so, so one whatever. more time: cybersecurity and infra- infrastructure security agency. Yes, CISA. For okay. sure. <laughs> That's why they say that. Yeah. So CISA has a director who happens to be a former Microsoft guy who was really good at his job, and CISA. One of the infrastructures that CISA look after is voting infrastructure. Uh, but also stuff like, you know, the power plant that keeps the lights on. Like, it's pretty broad-ranging, pretty important uh, agency. And they've actually been pretty effective throughout the last couple of years. And last week, CISA was one of the agencies that released a report saying, basically, the US elections were the most secure ever, and there is absolutely no evidence that any machines were voting for the wrong person, changing votes, not counting votes. They gave a list, basically, of what didn't happen. And there was also no massive foreign hacks. 
And that's not because foreign countries didn't want to. It's because CISA did their job. Hmm. So everyone kind of expected that once CISA basically went, no, no, the elections were fine, that someone would be cranky at them. Well, shock and or horror, the head of CISA has been fired for doing his job too well. So, yes. Anyway. Moving I'll on. Leave it at that. They are the facts. <laughs> um, Apple have confirmed that they still intend to enable their app tracking transparency, which is basically the feature where apps that track you are going to have to ask your permission first. And they're going to do that early next year still. Uh, They're coming under massive pressure from privacy groups saying, you promised us this at WWDC, how dare you weasel out and not implement it until next year. And simultaneously, the ad industry is going absolutely bananas that how dare you do this? And they've now found a unique, and there's there's now another issue where we have a European privacy body, NOIB, have filed a complaint claiming that the very existence of the ID for advertising within iOS is a violation of European law. Oh, wow. So poor Apple cannot get this right any which way. Um, But they say they're still going to implement it, even though the ad industry is going nuts. And you have privacy advocates going, yeah, the fact that there even is a tracker that people can opt into is wrong. So I don't know how any of this is going to play out, but there we are. Wow. You know, I, I the, <laughs> the funniest political thing I heard recently, and, and, and this works no matter what your politics are, is that because we're very likely to have a, a mixed government of Democrats and Republicans in different mm-hmm. positions of power, that this was great news for the tech industry because there's no way anything can possibly get done in the next four years that would ever affect them. <laughs> like their stock when went the up. Position, when the status quo is good, <laughs> gridlock suits you. Exactly. It's like, well, that's, that's where we can find our optimism now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Meanwhile, Eero have added some nice new security features to the mesh router system, so you don't need new hardware. The the brain Mm. has just gotten brainier, so that's nice. I didn't know that. And MacPaw have joined the VPN game with what is honestly an interesting-looking new product. It's a a paid product, so follow the money, etc. It's called ClearVPN. It's Windows, Mac, Android, and iOS. Mm. And the thing they're focusing on is easy configuration. So you just tick a box that says, I want to bypass geolocation. Mm-hmm. And it figures out what that actually means for you at the moment. So, so if like when I go- wanted to watch the Olympics and I wanted to watch the girls gymnastics or women's gymnastics in the Olympics and it wasn't airing in the United States and I needed to see it from somewhere else, it would have figured it out for me. Correct. So you basically tell the app what you'd like, and the app figures out what router, what server to route you through. Mm, cool. Yeah. So as I say, it looks it looks interesting. I mean, obviously, I haven't tried, but it looks right. good. It's at the very least a promising product, and the business I like that company sound. too. I I, I like. Yeah, that. they they've earned my respect exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some good news from the States to end on two pieces. Uh, T-Mobile is the first U.S. carrier to enable a new feature in the U.S. called 988, which is a, a mental health emergency line. So if you are on oh. T-Mobile and you are suffering a mental health crisis, you dial 988 and someone will help. Okay. 
And meanwhile, Los Angeles police have banned the use of commercial facial recognition, which is a story you were kind enough to send along. When's the last time we got a good one from Los Angeles? It's usually, yeah, they're taking pictures of you and your license plates and wherever you travel and geolocating you. But for once, LA bans facial recognition. Or the one that we love to, to, to mock you for mercilessly is that your school district considered pizza a vegetable. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, they're Beth- getting their five a day pizza. <laughs> how it works. Exactly. Anyway, uh, back you up a little bit. The, uh, the Eero uh, enhancements to security are an extra paid for service that starts at two ninety nine a month. So it's not part of the Eero itself. Oh. Oh, poopy. Yeah. I more, I more should have made that jump up a little higher and I wouldn't e- have put it in the show notes. Eero Secure and Eero Secure Plus, which started mm. $2.99 a month. Yeah. Oh, well. It's not a huge amount of money, but that's an interesting business model. Yeah. Buy a router and then pay us every month to make it work. Do huh. more, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, as, it, as I say, interesting. But if I'd known it was a paid for, I wouldn't, it wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have given them free advertising. Um. Other than that, one piece of interesting insight, um, Vice.com, who regularly do very well-researched, technically accurate stories on techie stuff, I'm developing a lot of respect for Vice.com, how the US military buys location data from ordinary apps. Not a happy story, Mm -mm. but I learned a lot. So if you'd like to learn something, there, there be the link. And now we can cleanse our palate. Um, So... The first thing that really caught my eye is a Twitter thread showing the first ARM CPU and Apple's M1 system on a chip (laughs) and comparing and contrasting them at a technical level. Oh, it is astonishing how far we have come in those years. It's really quite impressive. Uh, And then the EFF have launched a new podcast. It's called How to Fix the Internet. Oh, Yes, and as its name suggests, the podcast focuses on explaining the problems plaguing the internet, which would be horribly depressing, and the the show's pivot halfway through from here's everything that's wrong and why it's a disaster, and they don't end there. They then pivot to, and here is a realistic path to fixing this. Oh, cool. Because there's plenty so it, of things that, uh, pl- plenty of podcasts yeah. and news, or, you know, articles you can read that tell you everything that's wrong. That's easy, right? It's easy to be a curmudgeon. But actually being able to go, okay, so this is where we are. I now understand where we are and why we don't want to be here. Now what? Well, the now what is actually the funnest part of the podcast. So the first episode is out. And I think it did an amazing job of explaining U.S.'s FISA courts. And I use court in inverted commas because apparently if you don't have an adversarial system, it's not really a court. <laughs> um, and it actually explains pretty darn well what the problem is and lays out some simple fixes to make it work better. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Very cool. You find the most so interesting shows. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and they advertise each other. Ah, that's the trick. So uh, you also put one, I think you put it in Slack uh, that I want to uh, call attention oh, yes. to, uh, Changelog, and they uh, it was a, an episode on the future of the Mac, and uh, it features Tim Trimstra, how do you, Trimstra from Apple, 
and he's talking about uh, all his time at Apple and and the what he thinks the uh, M1 Max mean and how uh, the impact and they get deep into some real good nerdy details about the chip and stuff and uh, Xcode and all that. That was yeah. a great recommendation. Oh, you listened to it, did you? Well, I'm through part one, which is with Tim uh, Tim Trimpsta, yeah. okay. and part two is with Ken Case from the Omni Group. And I'm telling you, if you've never heard Tim uh, um, Ken Case speak, he is one of the most delightful people I've ever met. Uh, I got to Couldn't spend a bunch of time with him last year, and he is just a lovely human and an interesting guy to listen to and loves to tell stories. So I'm looking forward to part two on that. So the podcast yeah. is, uh, the episode is called The Future of Mac, and it's The Changelog. Yes. And actually, the changelog was recommended to me through your Slack. Oh, was it? Oh, and I've been subscribed for about six months now. Uh, I think it was Geeko Supremo recommended it, actually. He finds the best stuff. Yeah. So I've been a listener now for at least six months. And this episode really stood out to me because a lot of the time when you have an Apple exec interviewed, you know there's a PR person listening in on the other mic and that the Apple people are just parroting what was on the keynote. Not in this podcast. Yeah. This was a nerd to nerd. I mean, you, you've, you've listened to the first bit, so you know that the, the Apple engineer was talking engineer to engineer with the changelog guys, and I learned a lot. Right, right, right. Well, I'm going to add it to the show notes. Excellent. Cool. Okay, well, that's all I got. Um, and I have one, I have two minutes to get my stand in for the hour. So, uh, all right, we better call it. Clearly, this was a wrap up. nice, long, meaty one. I enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, you did, you did complain, you know, there hadn't been enough deep dives. So there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I learned a lot. Okay. Well, until next time, folks, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com, right? You know that. You want to become a patron? podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation? You can do that too. podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join our community, you can join our Slack if you want at podfeet.com slash Slack or our Facebook community at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, we're still missing Kevin, but he'll be back soon. Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Mozilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.